0: Gateway, happy Sunday. Kyle here, pastor at Gateway. Uh, So glad to be here with you. This is the fourth and uh, final Sunday of our Advent series. We are still waiting for Jesus. (laughs) It's like, oh come, come Lord Jesus, come. And this week we reflect on peace or what the authors of the Bible in Hebrew call shalom. Shalom is about like the fullness of God's presence with us. It's not simply the absence of something, but the presence of someone, namely, Jesus. Depending on whether you grew up in or around churchianity, and really the, the type of church you would have been in if you did grow up in and around churchianity, whether it was high or low, Protestant, Catholic, evangelical, mainline, all of that— would inform your Christmas experience and inform how your Christmas experience would play itself out. Now, if you're like me, Christmas was formed more by consumerism with like a sprinkling of a nativity here and uh, Christmas carols there, not really about the advent of the Lord Jesus. And so with, with that contrast in mind, I just want to put this forward to you all. Like our hope at Gateway is that whatever you bring, past and present, into this Advent season, our hope is that our collective imaginations, that is, like our whole church, how we think about the story of Jesus coming to us, that our collective imaginations would be pliable in the hands of God in the story of his redemption and restoration this season. So that that's why we're entering into this season week after week we're waiting we're attending to our longings we're thinking about what might peace look like and that's where we turn today and to be clear advent is not christmas like this is the season where we wait we await god's coming to us in jesus the messiah and we consider our misplaced hopes. Um, that's not necessarily Christmassy. <laughs> we, we consider the potency of God's love. We, we remember the joy of our salvation and the hope of our ultimate salvation in God. And today, we look at peace. But peace not as just something, but rather as someone, as a man named peace. Namely, Jesus of Nazareth. And today we receive our teaching text along with millions of other Christians around the globe from the Revised Common Lectionary in the second reading. And so if you are able, I would just invite you wherever you are uh, to stand with me in honor of God's word. See, this is not just a perfunctory task. It isn't something we just do because we've always done it. This is to say that his word is alive. It's active. It it shapes the very fabric of reality. And so let us stand in honor We're reading from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, and this is what we read. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations... According to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And uh, if you're still standing, you can have a seat. You see, I I don't know what you think of when you think of Paul's letter to the Romans. Perhaps to you it's a confusing letter or this impenetrable fortress of theological information, like a theological treaty or something like that. If you encountered it like I did when I first began following Jesus, it became this uh, like grab bag of Christian cliche and theological sayings that I really didn't know what they meant. <laughs> and if I'm honest, that's how it's remained in my imagination and really until recently. Or maybe you're not even there, like you've never read through Paul's letter to the Romans or you started reading it, you got you know pretty far, you got through the quote unquote good stuff Turn the corner in chapter 12 where Paul starts uh, asking and challenging this community to embody the theological stuff, and you're just so emotionally exhausted that you kind of skim right through it. You get to the final greetings, and then you get to our text, the doxology, and you're like, Amen, I am done. (laughs) See, most churches and in seminary classrooms, if I'm honest, the experience is the same. It's exhaustion by the time you get to chapter 12, and you kind of just skim through the rest. That's because Romans is emphasized as this theological work. It's a work on the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of salvation, etc., etc. And so, when we think about Advent and Romans, specifically Romans 16 and the very end of Romans 16, it can feel like a bit of an odd place to, to draw an Advent passage from. At least it did to me at first. And now I don't, I don't know the rationale of the lectionary's choice of this text. You know, it's interesting, none of the other verses in chapter 16 are chosen by the lectionary. It's a bit of a curious thing, and yet the doxology is. I don't, I don't pretend to understand, and I'm not going to try today. <laughs> but as I sat with this passage that comes to us, I began to turn it over and over in my mind and my heart, wondering how might these words... How might these words draw us into the Christ event just just days away now? Well, I couldn't help but consider the place from which our passage comes. That, that is, it's at the end of the letter. You know, the place is significant. N- none of these verses just happen by themselves. They're not uh, little um, proverbs of good fortune that you unpack in a cookie. These are, in themselves, a collective measure, a of, of broad picture, a, a full picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the whole of scriptures they lead to and find their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. So this is not disconnected from what comes before it. Suffice it to say, R- Romans 16, though, uh, it does not get a lot of play in the Christian imagination. And yet here we find ourselves. What what a gift it is to receive this. We we get to do this. We get to turn this over in our minds together. And and receiving some help from a New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, um, I love how he addresses these final words in Romans. He he calls them a big splash. And he uses this little illustration. He has in his mind kids playing in a pool and uh, they're getting rather rowdy and they uh, decide in their minds to build a pyramid out of themselves. So they start strategizing, stacking one another up. And then other kids see how delightful that is, or apparently delightful, (laughs) small humans. And so they start climbing and then they've they've done it. And then other kids start climbing up to join in and it becomes this uh, densely packed glob of people. And then it's top heavy and it falls over and there's a big splash. And that is this passage. It's packed densely with all of these thoughts that have really preceded it. And then it's this big splash just saturating us in the glory of Jesus. We just leave Romans sopping wet in the glory of Jesus. and We must see that this is Paul's main point. So this isn't done by accident. Because to magnify Jesus as the one in whom the only wise God brings about the obedience of faith, that's kind of the whole point. It, and this is what we're going to focus on, in fact. And just uh, for your information, this is less of an expositional line-by-line digging into the minutiae, parsing out, you know, great and stuff like that, uh, it's not that kind of a teaching. This is more of a thematic interplay, springing off of that final line in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. In other words, it is the wisdom of God to magnify Jesus. And at first glance, to see God called the only wise God well, that may just seem like another uh, quote-unquote bible not really sure if that's a word, but it works here, I think you know what I mean, another bible way to describe God. In the Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament, God is, is said to be slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and kindness, all of these things, these accolades. So this seems to fit in that, and, and certainly that, that is it, but that's not the full extent because in reality this is huge. This is Paul's way of contrasting Yahweh and his wisdom on one hand and the wisdom of the world on the other hand. See, the the curious thing about the the wisdom of the world is that it hasn't really changed over the years. The the song is fundamentally the same. Maybe the arrangement is a bit different, but you hear it and you're like, "I, I know that. I know that tune. It's so familiar. You could be in first century Rome or in 2020 and you know the song. It goes like this. Power, prestige, and position are the way to the good life. And Romans, at its core, the letter itself, it centers on this, namely confronting that wisdom, the wisdom of the world that is creeping in, to the life of the church. say this another way, Romans is a confrontation of power and privilege with a substantially different reality that is the peaceful reality of Jesus. And Paul's point at the end of it all is that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he magnifies God's peace and if this feels like a bit of a stretch from our teaching text and Advent and all of this, like, oh, you're just trying to get peace in there, Kyle. Check this out. Uh, for about 200 years, the Roman Empire was stable-ish. You know, the odd uh, putting down the rebellion here and there. But they were stable. And, and do you know what they called that Stability. Yeah, but for those of you who guessed Pax Romana, you're right. It's the peace of Rome. That's what they called that season of stability. But just like today, the the title of peace is a bit misleading, and that peace is not really peace for everyone. We can talk about peace as being peace for everyone, but when we look out and we survey reality, we see that the peace that we talk about, the fluff, you could say, doesn't really map on to what's happening in everyone's lives. The Rome's peace was for the privileged and the powerful. And a gal, uh, Becky Castle-Miller, she has this great definition of both terms in her Guide to Reading Romans Backwards, uh, which is a, a brilliant book I would commend to anybody and everybody in our church uh, by Scott McKnight. And it's really shaped so much of my thought here um, in this teaching. But anyways, uh, C- Castle-Miller says this about privilege. In general, privilege is the collection of benefits a culture gives a person or a people group that helps them succeed more easily. Privileged isn't earned. Let's let's hear that again, folks. Privilege isn't earned. It is simply possessed. And it comes from a person's innate attributes. And the value culture places on those attributes... She goes on to say that cultural power is usually given to the privilege. And this is what she means by power. And this is is fairly significant, so pay attention. Power is the strength held by those at the top of a hierarchy and is wielded over and against the people further down the hierarchy. Power gives access, access to instruments of coercion. Power itself is neutral but leans toward being misused to abuse ones without power. It's kind of an arresting set of definitions. If you consider prestige, you consider, excuse me, if you consider privilege, he's looking at you. At the time that we're living in, blonde haired, blue-eyed, white male in America, I have culturally conferred power. That is, I I have privilege given to me. And then the culture, based on those attributes that I didn't choose, the culture has given power to those attributes and then rearranged systems so that those with power could maintain it. You see, this is is in part the wisdom of the world manifest. And so, we don't choose necessarily to be born or like we're just born. We are who we are in some sense. And when we show up to who we are, then there's a reckoning to be made. When we consider this reality in light of Rome, this is the story. It's the story of privilege in power. And in order for Rome to maintain that Pax Romana, to keep the peace, Rome abused, they maligned, they killed their neighbors and even their own citizens. And the chief act to keep the peace, the the thing that kept the the other uh, potential aggressors at bay was their knowledge of, it was like a show of force on the cross or a Roman execution rack. See, Paul's letter to the Romans, it comes because that toxicity, that desire to keep the peace by any means possible. By the way, when you keep peace by way of violence, or rather, if you make peace through violence, then you have to keep the peace through violence. See how that works? And that toxicity had crept into the, the life of the church in Rome. They'd fallen prey to this worldly wisdom, the wisdom that says, seek power, seek privilege, seek status. Because from there, you'll be able to leverage that power, that privilege, and that status to, to maybe uh, act on behalf of Jesus. And Paul challenges that. He challenges the wisdom of the world that's seeking prestige and vying for power and position, because for Paul, this utterly defies the wisdom of God that is magnified in Jesus. We actually see this when we reflect back through the letter of Romans, and I think there's one place that we see it so poignantly. Um, It's in Romans 5. So, So if you have your analog Bible, flip your way on over with me uh, to Romans chapter 5. This is what we read in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and just stop right there, we're jumping into the middle of kind of an argument. Um, Paul is is interacting with other means of, of saying, how do we stand rightly with God? Is it Is it just by virtue of observing the Torah plus Jesus? So Paul is entering into this conversation and he says this, we have been justified by faith, allegiance, trust. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then check this out in verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm just holding some space there for all of you to say amen in your living room. See, in, in other words, we have peace with God in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, who is with us. Notice this, peace is not the absence of something. It's not the absence of suffering or challenge or hardship. Rather, peace is the presence of someone. Pre- peace is the fullness of God, present to us in the Holy Spirit, God's very personal presence. And So hear this again. Through Jesus, peace has come. Therefore, when we think of Paul's doxology, our teaching text in Romans 16, the the text at the very end says the glory of the only wise God has come through Jesus the Messiah. When we think on this, we're meant to call to mind all of the things, everything that is available to us in Jesus. So we think back on Romans five and we think, okay, through Jesus, we have peace with God, amen. Through Jesus, we have access by faith into his grace. Through Jesus, we rejoice in our sufferings. Hold on a second, what? Yes, notice this peace. It's not just a triumphal peace. Through Jesus we rejoice in our sufferings because somehow, and I don't understand this, but suffering does this thing where it creates space. It holds this tension whereby we might endure. And and we'll see the beauty of our endurance. It's not based on our own strength. We'll see it at the very end here, um, that it comes with the Holy Spirit. But it holds this tension whereby we might endure, where our character can be formed, where hope can emerge. And Paul says that that hope is not a shameful hope. Rather, that hope is something that is truly hopeful because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you and to me which sounds kind of weird until you read the very next verse Romans 5 6 for while we were still weak do do you feel weak at this point in 2020 for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly in a, in a culture, Rome, that is prestige-seeking, that is pursuing power and privilege, status, Paul says that Christ's orientation, that is Jesus' orientation, is toward the weak and the ungodly. This is odd. It's as odd then as it is now. When I ask the question, how weak do you feel? If... if there's something that recoils, at least in me. I'm not trying to like transpose my experience onto you, but still like, I don't want that. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be frail. I want to be able to get through it on my own gumption. I want, I just, I want to do it. And that is a more American notion than a biblical notion, more than a Christian notion. It is more American than it is Jesus-y. But what we see clearly in that is that peace is not the absence of something, of of suffering, of challenge, of hardship. Rather, peace is about the presence of someone, about the fullness of God present to us in the Holy Spirit. And that, that peace, that peace comes through Jesus. And more specifically, through Jesus laying aside his life on a Roman execution rack. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, that Roman execution rack, that might be confusing. I don't mean to do so. That's the cross. See, the cross is the place where suffering is transformed, that suffering can indeed produce hope with a seal of the Spirit. By the way, when Rome executed Jesus on that cross, they thought they were keeping the peace. Jesus is a a troublemaker there in Israel-Palestine. He gets put to death, they're keeping the peace. But what they didn't know is that their peacekeeping was the unleashing of God's peacemaking. See, when, when the scriptures talk about God's peace, they're talking about the ultimate coming together. And by that, I, I just mean it's the renewal of all things. The, the words that the Bible employs are these, these two words. In, in the Hebrew, it's shalom. Can you say that with me? Shalom beautiful. And in the Greek, it's Irene. Say that with me. Irene. Yeah. Uh, These two words have nested within them. These ideas of prosperity and success and welfare and a state of health, friendliness. Even today in um, like modern Hebrew, shalom is used as a greeting. And that's not all, there's, there's deliverance tucked in there and salvation, because peace is less about the absence of something and more about the presence of someone. But this Advent, this problem remains, this problem persists, and that is that peace, for many of us, feels far off. Though we claim to follow Jesus, and though in some measure we like align our lives with Jesus, peace who is Jesus feels far off and that bugged me like more than anything that that bugged me because I felt it in myself I asked as I was preparing this I was like I'm writing this is this true like is is this true do is peace present to me at least I know this is true, but do I feel it? Like, do I feel it in the marrow of my bones that God is present to me through the Spirit and that that is the peace? It doesn't matter what's going on in the world, that there is a, like, a constant and persistent sense of well-being. Is that reality true? I didn't really get a response. (laughs) I was like, God audibly spoke. Some questions came forward. Like, what, what if... What if the problem is less that peace is far off and more that I just don't understand true peace? <laughs> what if I've, I've like settled for a pseudo-peace called comfort and I've just mistaken the two things, thinking that it's just the absence, and I, uh, absence of suffering and I stop right there. And when I finally have the cessation of suffering, well, then <sighs> I can take a deep breath because comfort has arrived. The, the conclusion I've come to in this is that We don't need a passive or comfortable peace, especially not now. And praise be to the only wise God forevermore, because the kind of peace that God brings, it's not passive, church. God's peace, it breaks into the quote unquote wrong of the world and makes it right, makes it new. God's peace, it, it takes our suffering and it, in it through this refining process that I just don't quite understand, but somehow God takes our suffering and transforms it into hope. And if this is true, then our path of formation and more so our path of transformation in the way of Jesus, it is not one of peacekeeping where we kind of hold the tensions at bay. No, it's one where we enter into the fray. It is a path of peacemaking. So we actually get to prepare the way for Jesus' return by actively making peace around us. Just think, where in your world, and I don't mean world macro sense, I mean world like your living room, (laughs) like the people in your phone, where in your world does peace need to be made? Right, let me be more specific here. Who do you need to make peace with? If we're going to sit and light a candle and enact the reality of the peace of God, come to us in Jesus, like powerfully made present through the Spirit, and then not do anything, I think that means we'll just stop at the absence of suffering. We won't come to the fullness, the, the complete bringing together, the integration of all things in, by God, in Christ, like, do you realize that when peace comes to us in Jesus, that we get all of Jesus? That means we get the reconciliation of Jesus. So, peace, peace, is, a, peace is a scary thing. Fortunately, we wait. We're waiting for Jesus to do it ultimately, and yet we enact that reality now. See, this isn't some abstract reality that I'm just pulling out of nowhere. In Ephesians 2, a letter also written by Paul, a letter meant to be circulated around the ancient like Mediterranean basin, Turkey and stuff. In uh, Ephesians 2, we read this. In Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Where was his blood spilt? It was spilt on the cross at Calvary. <laughs> so we've been brought near for he himself is our peace. And then see how Paul unpacks the Jesus being our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And this, Paul is talking about the tensions between Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And he says in, in himself, he makes the two one. The wisdom of God, the only wise God, magnified in Jesus, is that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the fullness of God present to us through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And what that means is that we are people of peace. Like if if we do business in the world as followers of Jesus from our identity in Christ, and let me just, um, this is not my notes, so forgive me if if this seems a bit unformed, um, but If you were baptized into Christ, what that moment signified was that you, in a semblance similar to Jesus' death, you went down into the depths, and in the power of God, you rose So you were dead to sin and alive to Christ. You put aside your freedoms, your liberties, your power, your privilege, your prestige, and you rose in the power of God, knowing that you are now one who will inherit all things. That the world is not your inheritance. You see, if we go to the wisdom of the world, thinking that we will find the way of Jesus, we are in for a rude awakening. If we have been baptized into Christ, we are dead. Dead people don't seek for prestige. Dead people don't seek for power. Rather, we rest in the finished work of Jesus. We wait for him to bring it to consummation. And right now, we embody the way of peace. I'm tempted to like play the Holy Spirit and give like a bunch of scenarios where we can do that interpersonally and in our families and in our church. But what I would love is if we could just pray right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hold a moment where we just sit silently. We ask the Spirit to, to like minister to our hearts, to bring that person, that thing, that scenario that we need to make peace in, to mind. And let us not callous our hearts to the Spirit who speaks to us. So I'm just going to hold some space for us to do that. And then I'm going to pray and we will continue uh, to respond to God and worship through song. So let us pray. Jesus, you make a way forward where we think there ought not be a way. This has been your business. When your people come to a sea, you part it. When your people come to a river, you make it stand still and you lead us, Lord. May we in this moment follow your leading still. May we be a people who keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, who keep in step with you, So I just pray for courage for each and every one of us to step in to that space and make peace, to hold in our bodies the sufferings of this present age, knowing that endurance and character and hope are still to come. So Lord Jesus, we say may it be so as we wait on your coming. Amen. Amen.